Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. Good evening, Facebook. Thank you for joining us today for our TIFF Talk Tuesday. I'm very excited to have our special guest, Dr. Amy Tyberg. Um, welcome, Dr. Tyberg, and thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor, honor to be here. Thank you. So Dr. Tyberg is an Associate Professor of Medicine, also the Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs, Associate Director of Endoscopy and Director of Therapeutic EUS at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Her primary research focus is in interventional endoscopy, and she has contributed to over 50 publications and been a co-investigator on several prospective and multi-center international studies. So again, we're very, very excited to have you here today. And um, we're looking forward to discussing a little bit more about GERD and the TIF procedure. So thank you. Great. Great. Thanks so, again for having me and for yeah. that kind introduction. <laughs> of course. Thank you. So as you all know, Facebook users, this is a live event. And at any time, if you're interested in asking Dr. Tyberg a question, just feel free to comment in the little chat box and we will do our best to answer all of your questions as best we can throughout the whole event. So uh, thank you again and we're going to go ahead and start. So Dr. Tiber, we're going to talk about GERD today. Can you kind of give us a little um, more information of what is GERD? What are the types of symptoms a potential patient could um, be, be feeling or suffering from if they do have GERD? Yep. So, so GERD is a process where uh, contents from inside the stomach reflux up into the esophagus or the food pipe, um, and this process is can be physiologic at times, but it can also cause a bunch of troublesome symptoms, as well as mucosal injury to the cells lining the esophagus, and that's when we call it when we call it GERD. And the reason that happens is because the stomach contents are full of are full of acid; they're very acidic, and that's important in terms of the uh, stomach's role in digestion. And the stomach cells that that line the stomach are built in order to uh, be ready to deal with this acidic environment. But the cells that line the esophagus are not designed to deal with that kind of acid. And that's why uh, it causes symptoms when this material refluxes up there and sometimes even uh, damage to those types of cells. And usually this manifests, you know, the classic GERD symptom that we all think about is heartburn, where you feel that pain sort of in the middle of your chest, classically after eating. Um, but it can be 
a whole, uh, there's a whole different uh, slew of symptoms that can also be consistent with GERD. And what I like to tell my patients is nobody reads the textbook and GERD can manifest very differently in different individuals. So some of the other uh, ways that, uh, you know, patients can experience GERD is by coughing or by regurgitation, or sometimes uh, I'll hear descriptions of having a sour sour taste in your mouth or constant clearing of the throat. Um, and there's a, you know, a variety of other, other symptoms as well. So, um, you know, sometimes it's classic, sometimes it's not, but it's all the same uh, physiologic process. Yeah. Right. Thank you. That was a really great explanation. So we're doing a little bit of a uh, fun factor fiction. Um, so I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions and ask you factor fiction. So, and we'll do that throughout our whole um, talk. Uh, so smoking and inhaling secondhand smoke can cause heartburn. Fact or fiction? Fiction. So that's a fact. Um, uh, relaxes what's called the lower esophageal sphincter. And that's a muscle that uh, normally is contracted at the bottom of the esophagus where the esophagus connects to the stomach that prevents things from refluxing up. And this muscle relaxes when you're swallowing and when food is going down. But smoking um, or even just inhaling secondhand smoke can actually make this muscle relax even when you're not swallowing. And that allows for a more easy access of stomach contents to reflux up into the esophagus. So one more thing that um, smoking can do. I, I like to right. say pick any organ and I can do something bad that uh, is associated with uh, cigarette smoke. And, and this is the, the way that it affects the esophagus and the stomach. Okay, thank you. Here's one other one. GERD can be a cause of sleep apnea. That's also a fact. Um, so uh, sometimes what happens is that GERD uh, can, when you have refluxing of stomach acid during the time that you're sleeping, it can actually disrupt your sleep and cause you to sort of startle awake. And, and that's what we call sleep apnea. So that's, that is true. Yeah, and that's we hear a lot of um, complaints about uh, GERD or acid refluxes is the sleeping, not being able to sleep, um, having that pain and having to prop themselves up. A lot of patients uh, complain about that. So, um, Dr. Tyber, what do you um, generally um, talk to patients about for managing their GERD symptoms? What are, are there lifestyle modifications or activities that and or food that they should steer away from if they have GERD? Yeah, so that's, it's actually a perfect segue to talk about GERD while sleeping because there's lots of different dietary and lifestyle changes that are really the first step in any patient um, that's suffering from GERD. And one of the things um, that we talk about is, you know, how using gravity to your advantage. So, you know, lying flat, while you're sleeping certainly uh, makes it easier for gastric contents to reflux up onto the esophagus. So some of the lifestyle changes we recommend would be, you know, sleep on a couple of pillows, elevate yourself a little bit just to make that angulation a little bit sharper and make it a little bit harder for uh, stomach acid to reflux up. Similarly, I tell patients, you know, if it's possible, try to sleep on your left side instead of on your back, on your right side, because that, um, also works with gravity to make the stomach sort of lower down and make it harder for uh, gastric contents to reflux up into the esophagus. Um, right. And then there's other things like, uh, you know, uh, 
obviously quitting smoking, we talked about, or staying right. away from inhaling secondhand smoke, trying to eat smaller meals so the stomach doesn't get really distended. Again, kind of putting pressure on helping reflux uh, contents reflux up. Um, and then the, you know, the one that I think is the hardest for everyone to who suffers from GERD to to adhere to, but is to avoid those, you know, classic trigger types of foods that unfortunately most are delicious and uh, things that people want, um, but they are notorious for inducing reflux. And again, when I, you know, I tell patients, nobody reads the textbook, but I tell, you know, my patients as well, not everybody is going to react to every type of food on this list. Generally, it's pretty easy to identify what foods are your individual trigger foods and, and what are not. But the, the classic ones that we think about are caffeine, um, which includes coffee. That's a big one. That's hard yeah. for a lot of people. Um, tomatoes are another big one. Peppers, uh, carbonated beverages, citrusy fruits and vegetables, spicy foods. Um, yeah. There's... It's All a big the good ones. All the good ones. Alcohol, <laughs> wine. Exactly. So, so many to name, unfortunately, right? Uh, so what I usually say is I say, you know, cut everything out at first. And then, you know, you can add things back one at a time and try to see if all of them cause your symptoms or if it's just maybe some of them and not all of them. So, um, you know, that's sort of how I approach it for each patient. Fantastic. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about what options are available for treating GERD today. Yeah. So, you know, I think the first place to start is with the diet and lifestyle changes. And, you know, for some, for some people that's enough, just doing those things is enough to control their symptoms, but for many it's not. And an additional intervention is needed. And it used to be that really the only option was from the very uh, non-invasive to the more invasive and the non-invasive side would be the medications, which right. all of us are familiar with the PPI class of medications. And that's uh, generally the first place to start in terms of medical therapy. And then it used to be that if, you know, if symptoms progressed through that or didn't fully respond, that the only other option available was a more invasive option like a surgical procedure. And I found that, you know, if you look, if you look back over time, there are a lot of patients that were kind of stuck in the middle that, you know, didn't really get full relief from just medical therapy, but also didn't really have symptoms uh, severe enough to have a surgery or were afraid of the side effects or the invasiveness of the surgical procedure. And so now we actually are able to offer the sort of the middle ground, um, which is the endoscopic option, which does right. pretty much the same thing as the surgery in terms of uh, how the procedure works, but without the side effect profile, without the need for any incisions, without the prolonged recovery. So um, it's an exciting, exciting time for patients with GERD, absolutely. Fantastic. So uh, there's a lot of debate and a lot of press that's come out um, just recently about the medications for heartburn or acid reflux or BIRD, if you will. Um, for example, you know, the PPIs, um, Times Magazine or Time just came out with a, an article about PPIs potentially uh, not causing um, the COVID, you know, COVID, but may uh, affect their uh, chances of getting COVID. 
what are your thoughts on on that? I mean, it's kind of the elephant in the room, right? Everybody's concerned about getting COVID. Um, what um, what are your thoughts about about that? I think that this is a question that I get asked pretty much every uh, time that I have my office sessions, at least uh, once a session. And it's it's because I, you know, what I say is it's now sort of the trendy thing in medicine to come out with another publication related to these PPI class of medications. And, you know, what, I, what I'll say is, you know, that a lot of the studies that have been published are what we call association studies, meaning that this many people are on PPI medications and this many people have this condition, therefore they must be related. And that's, that's possible, but it definitely doesn't prove cause and effect. You know, the really, none of the studies are what we call sort of the gold standard randomized control studies. But that being said, usually wherever there's smoke, there's fire somewhere. And so, you know, I think there's probably um, truth to some of these associations and definitely you know, it seems to be dose dependent. So the higher the dose, um, the the longer the duration that you're needing these medications seems to be a little bit higher risk. So, you know, I, I think absolutely if you aren't getting benefit from this class of medications um, or if you don't if you don't need it, if your symptoms, um, you know, get better and you no longer need the medications, it's worth coming off them. Um, and I think for, you know, for uh, people that are, you know, going to need to be on very high doses and dependent on that for long periods of time, it's reasonable to think about other interventions. Um, but it's, it's a very individualized choice and there's no, there's no right and wrong. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a very personal decision, but I think it's important to know all of the options. And that's what I, you know, impart to my patients when I see them during the visit that, you know, these are the options for medications. These are the risks. These are the other options available. Should you want to pursue something else? Um, right. And I let them sort of think about it and decide how they want to proceed. So, so I'm sure there's been um, a lot of questions in regards to that. Um, should so should patients consult with their physician if they're going to stop taking PPIs, or is that something safe that they can do and start weaning themselves off of PPIs? I mean, I think it's a little bit of personal preference and it definitely depends why the patient is on the PPI. You know, if, if you're on the medication because of uh, things like esophagitis or, or Barrett's esophagus, then you definitely need to speak with your, with your healthcare provider before weeding yourself off it or a history of ulcers, things like that. If it's purely for symptoms, then, you know, I think it's probably okay to try weaning off it on your own, but with some information because you can get a little bit of what we call rebound reflux view right. or to, you know, stop it after being on it for long periods of time. So, you know, a reasonable taper is important in those situations. Right. So you mentioned a good point. Uh, you were talking about Barrett's and then also, you know, there's esophageal cancer. So can you talk a little bit about that? What's the correlation of GERD and getting Barrett's uh, and potentially esophageal cancer? What's What's the correlation and maybe going a little bit in depth with that? We get lots of questions about that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an association. We know that, you know, longstanding reflux is definitely a risk factor for developing 
Barrett's esophagus, and Barrett's esophagus is certainly a risk factor for developing esophageal cancer. So, you know, why everybody with GERD doesn't get, you know, Barrett's, we don't know necessarily, and why, you know, you can get Barrett's just by having sort of silent symptoms. But, um, you know, in the majority of cases, there's a, a long history of reflux uh, in patients who develop Barrett's. And it's important to look for that. And if it's identified, it's definitely important to um, maintain a surveillance regimen because you do need to uh, be watched closely because although the risk of progression to esophageal cancer is low, it is definitely real. And it's something that um, can often be picked up in endoscopic biopsies. And, you know, we definitely have clues. There's a, there's a progression before it just goes straight from, you know, Barrett's to cancer. And so, you know, being in a surveillance regimen is important so that we can catch it in the early stages, identify you as someone that, you know, has the type of Barrett's that seems to be progressive and treat that uh, before, before it gets to the cancer stage. Right. So you talked a little bit about surveillance um, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about um, the diagnostic testing um, process and, and things to determine whether or not a, a patient uh, truly has GERD and or if they are candidates for these other um, options for treatment um, for GERD. Yeah. So, I mean, my approach is generally, you know, I, I will start with an endoscopy, although, you know, all of us know that many times, even if you have horrible symptoms of reflux, your endoscopy may be normal. But it's important to look to see if there are mucosal damages like esophagitis. It's important to rule out bacteria that can live in the stomach that can worsen reflux uh, disease and reflux symptoms and treat that if it's there. Um, and, uh, and to look for, for Barrett's and, you know, take some biopsies if you see it to make sure there's not sort of uh, atypical cells that suggest that there's already progression from Barrett's to, to cancer. Um, for my own practice, you know, there's a lot of variation in terms of what kind of workup gets done before thinking about some of these more um, procedural approaches to treatments of GERD, like the endoscopic uh or the surgical procedure. Everyone's a little bit different in what they do pre-procedure. For me, uh, it depends. You know, it's very individualized. If the patient has classic symptoms that get better with the PPI medication, or if there's evidence of esophagitis in the setting of classic symptoms, um, you know, then that to me is enough empiric data that, um, you know, this reflux disease and this patient would benefit from some of the more invasive uh, procedures. If it's a little bit less clear, you know, if the symptoms are atypical or the endoscopy is completely normal, then I might do something called the pH study, which actually um, endoscopically places a probe at the base of the esophagus, and that transmits information to a little recorder that okay. you carry around with you. And uh, and then we take that recorder and upload it. It tells us how much of the time the, the pH in the esophagus is uh, is low, suggesting mm -hmm. that there's a lot of acid that's coming up into the esophagus because the normal esophagus should have not a low pH, but a normal pH. And the other very important thing to look for is anatomical changes that may be predisposing to reflux. So I didn't mention this, but um, the presence of something called the hiatal hernia, which is when part of the stomach actually slides up into the chest um, through the diaphragm, can definitely be 
predisposed, like predisposed patients to reflux and can, uh, can be the reason that their reflux is, uh, is so severe. And if that's there, then that will definitely change the type of intervention that's, that's feasible uh, based okay. on, on the size or how much of the stomach is, is sliding up. Right. Yeah, we get that question all the time. If I have a high, these patients are very savvy and they, they do a lot of research and uh, know a lot of information. So the big question is, I've got a hyaluronic hernia. Can I have the TIF procedure? So um, I'll let you answer that. <laughs> yeah, the answer to that is maybe. It just uh, it totally depends on how big the hiatal hernia is. And for me, when I you know when I'm considering a patient to have an endoscopic procedure, checking for the hiatal hernia and really getting an accurate measurement of it is so critical because if there is a large hiatal hernia, then you can do the TIF procedure, no problem, but it's not going to be effective in the long run. And I think the worst thing is to undergo a procedure and, and you know, adhere to the post-procedure diet and then have it not be effective. And so whenever, you know, even if patients come to me already having had an endoscopy elsewhere, you know, I'll, I'll schedule the TIF procedure if the hiatal hernia is reported to be low, but I won't open the device or begin the procedure until I really do a, a full endoscopy and a really good measurement myself. And it's important not just to measure what we call forward viewing, meaning as you're inserting the scope down the esophagus into the stomach, you can kind of, you can see where the diaphragm squashes the stomach and where the mucosa changes between the esophagus and the stomach. And if there's a, a difference in those two things, then you can measure the, the hiatal hernia that way. We call that forward viewing. But I also mm -hmm. go into the stomach and then retroflex the scope, meaning like I look back on it myself sure. and then I insufflate, you know, blow up the stomach full of air to put maximum pressure. And then I see how big a, a hole there is uh, or a gap there is there because that's also a very important measurement. And if it's if there's too big of a gap there, that means that that, fundoplication is going to slide right back in and it's not going to be not going to be effective. So it's it's very important to assess for that beforehand. Yeah, that's a very good point. So we've got quite a few questions that have been coming in. So I'm going to ask a couple of these questions and we'll keep going. So um, one question, when should a patient with GERD be referred for surgery? So, you know, I think usually what happens is that, you know, the diet and lifestyle changes will be tried. If that doesn't work, then, you know, medications will be started. And if that doesn't work, then it's time to start thinking about other potential intervention, interventions. And that's, you know, a time for, for referral. The other, the other situation is if, you know, medications work, but let's, you know, someone that needs high doses of those medications in order to get relief and is layers of being on those high doses of medications, I think in those cases, it's reasonable also also to think about a referral, but it, it also never hurts. You know, there, you know, if someone is interested in, you know, maybe not on high doses of the medications, but just doesn't want to be on them at all. It's never wrong to think about getting a referral and just hearing about the, you know, the different options, because just because you come for a visit with me, doesn't mean that I'm going to immediately book you for a surgery or for an, right. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, the office visit is spent talking about the options and deciding together what to do. So, you know, a referral is never, it never hurts to 
have a referral and get information. You know, it's there's no commitment. It's not like I, you know, I don't get mad when, you know, the <laughs> is made not to proceed with the procedure by any means. I just want to make sure that, you know, every patient is aware that it's out there and what the what the oh, options are. I love that. I love that. I love that. So a couple more questions and then we'll kind of get into what the options are and talk a little bit more about the TIF procedure. So Another question, my aunt has started experiencing a lot of heartburn after going on a blood pressure medicine. Is there a relation? A lot of medications can uh, worsen reflux symptoms, and it's especially suspicious if the symptoms begin right after starting a new medication, then that's, you know, that's pretty suspicious. Sometimes they do get better if you just wait it out, um, but sometimes even just switching to a different medication in the same class is is effective enough to help with uh, with those symptoms. Okay, very good. Uh, and then one one other question: Can LPR get cured with the TIF procedure? Yeah. So uh, you know, uh, when we talk about the data, well, and we'll go into this a little more when we talk about the TIF procedure. But um, you know, the the patients that were included in those studies had a whole slew of different types of, of symptoms and pretty much across the board, every symptom got better. And certainly some responded, you know, a little bit better than others, but you know, it's, it's nothing is a hundred percent, but yes, it could be expected that uh, LPR symptoms would respond to, to a TIF procedure. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit more about the TIF procedure. Do you want to explain what it is and how it works? Um, and then you can go into studies too, if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, so the, the way the TIF procedure works, it actually does pretty much the same thing that the, you know, the surgical procedure does, which is it, it takes the stomach and it kind of twists it around the bottom of the esophagus, which does two things. It, one, it makes that opening a little bit smaller so that it's harder for contents to reflux up, but it also changes the angulation between the stomach and the esophagus so that the angle is harder as opposed to this way, it's this way, and it makes it harder for contents to reflux up. It's all done endoscopically, meaning no incisions. I, I like to say, you know, as gastroenterologists, we use holes that are already there. We don't make any new ones. And so <laughs> <I like> the, <laughs> the tip procedure is done completely through the mouth. Um, patients are under anesthesia and asleep for the procedure, so uh, you don't feel anything at all. And, uh, and it's, you know, it used to used to be a relatively long procedure, but now it's pretty quick. I can actually do the procedure on average in 25 minutes or so. Oh. so it's, a, it's a pretty quick procedure. Yeah. Um, I think one of the, you know, some of the major questions that I get asked is how does the wrap stay in place? And, you know, how do you, how do you make sure that it stays long-term? And the way that the procedure works is that you actually deploy these little sort of H shape, they're called fasteners, but you can think of them almost like staples. And uh, they are deployed through the device, which anchors the tissue in place. And, uh, and you may think, well, plastic, you know, fasteners, how can that hold long-term? And the, the answer is twofold. One, they're very strong, uh, but also they don't hold it in place long-term. What they do is create a reaction that causes scarring. And if you think about a cut on your finger when you get a scar, the skin feels sort of hard and not normal after that. And the same thing happens to the tissue in the wrap. It, it, it causes scarring and it hardens, and that's what keeps it in place over time. Um, yeah. Another question I get asked all the time, what about 
how will I feel afterwards? Do I have to stay overnight? What are the restrictions? And, uh, and I, you know, every time someone comes to see me in the office, I give them the diet to study ahead of time and uh, a lot of information about what to expect after the procedure. But um, basically what I, what I say is that I, I used to have every patient stay overnight in the hospital. And now I would say 95 of my patients, percent of my patients go home okay. this day as a procedure. So I generally will um, stay in the endoscopy unit for an hour or two after the procedure. And then if, you know, if you feel okay, then you go home. And that's definitely the majority of, of patients. The diet is a little bit stringent post-procedure, and I think that's probably the hardest part of the whole thing. Um, it is liquid liquids for almost two weeks before progressing to more solid types of foods, but that's because the fasteners are important really in the beginning to induce that fibrosis and that scarring, so we really want to make sure not to disrupt the wrap just in, in the short term. Um, but after that, you know, you, you progress sort of uh, to more and more normal diet and by six weeks after the procedure you can sort of go back to back to normal diet yeah they that that's a that one always scares everybody right what's the diet gonna be like <laughs> so yeah. but uh, uh, going home the same day that's that's fantastic um we do have a couple more questions i wanted to make sure we get answered uh you did this one was what was the typical recover well you didn't kind of talk about what's the typical recovery time after the tip procedure yeah. So, um, um, you know, as I said, generally my patients go home the same day for the most part. Um, rarely someone will stay maybe one night, but that's uh, definitely the minority. Most people feel fine after the procedure. I would say, um, you know, maybe some soreness, but generally not even severe enough to require any kind of medication. Um, I send everybody home with a little bit of liquid Tylenol with codeine just in case, but most tell me they don't even need it. Um, because uh, they feel pretty fine after the procedure. I would say the hardest part is that you may feel a little bit dehydrated or weak because of the diet. Um, so not so much from the procedure itself, just from adhering to the diet. Um, and I would say most people take, you know, do it, you're able to go back to work Monday or take one or two days off post-procedure, but um, it's not necessarily required. Yeah. How about going back to work or exercising? Uh, what's what's the time frame when they can go back to doing those type of normal things after the TIF procedure? Yeah, so in terms of work, you know, there's really no restriction. If if you feel if a patient feels okay going to work, even though they're just on you know liquid diet, then I have no problem with that. Unless it's a type of work that requires very heavy lifting, that's really or you know really strenuous exercise. That would be something that I would probably avoid for at least two, two to three weeks after the procedure. Um, okay. And what, and what about exercise? That's a big question we always get, you know, I, I lift weights. Can I lift weights? Can I do yoga? Can I run? What are the types of things that can they do right after they have the TIF procedure? Yeah, this one I say is the lifting, you know, you don't want to increase your intra-abdominal pressure too much. So lifting is, you know, really not a good not a good thing to do in terms of exercise, at least I would say two weeks, ideally closer to four if possible. Um, I do have, you know, moms that lift their kid up and, you know, I think, you know, that's it's not really lifting per se. So I, right. you know, I say after a week or so, that's probably fine. Um, but certainly, you know, weightlifting and, uh, you know, jobs and, you know, construction where you may have to be lifting heavy things, probably best to wait. Uh, at least two to four weeks after the procedure. Yoga, okay. no problem. You know, yeah. I don't think there's <laughs> to 
there. There's yeah. never a problem with yoga, right? Fine, you know, really strenuous running, maybe a week or so, but uh, okay, but that's Fantastic. really good. okay. Some more questions. Okay. Uh, so, um, I've been seeing a GI for a couple of years, he put me on PPIs, he's never mentioned the TIF procedure. How do I find a doctor near me who does the TIF procedure? Answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of that's a pretty common phenomenon. You know, it's not that new of a procedure, it's actually been around for, um, you know, the data in the US is over six years old at this point, and uh, in Europe, it's even, even longer than that, but there's still. A, a lot of places and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, gastroenterologists even that don't necessarily know about this type of procedure. So um, I'm always available. Or uh, <laughs> Exactly. If you're in the new, so yeah. what area are you? New Jersey or do you call that New Jersey, New York? What, yeah. The tri both area. <laughs> Tri-state area. Yeah. 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 Um, We're just like 45 minutes from Manhattan. You know, fantastic. But. Well, there, there you go. Um, but if you're not, I'm going to answer that, help answer that question too. Uh, you can go on girdhelp.com and there is a physician locator on there and you can put in your zip code or your state and you can find a physician near you that does the TIF procedure. So um, let's see what else. Can you fix a hiatal hernia and, and perform the TIF procedure? Yep. So if the, if the hiatal hernia is small, uh, less than we use two centimeters as the cutoff, then actually just doing the wrap itself heals the hiatal hernia and you don't need an additional hernia repair. If the hernia is larger, the hernia will have to be repaired. And as of yet, um, the only way to do that is with a surgical procedure. Although who knows what the future holds for us. But uh, <laughs> right now, uh, us as gastroenterologists, we can't do that just without making incisions. Um, but um, it is possible to do sort of a combined approach where you have a laparoscopic uh, repair of the of the hiatal hernia and then have a TIF after that. And that's, you know, definitely gaining in popularity. I, I know personally a lot of surgeons that have pretty much abandoned the surgical fundoplication and they'll do their surgical hernia repair and then do the endoscopic TIF afterwards because it, the efficacy is the same, but the side effect profile is so much better with the endoscopic version than the surgical one. And so, you know, I think certainly we're going to see more and more of that in the future. And then even uh, it's now even approved by the FDA for that indication. I think that was within the last year, a little yeah, more than a year. 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I'm, I'm, I know there's a lot of physicians that partner, a lot of GIs that partner with surgeons to do that combined procedure as well. They'll, the surgeon will um, repair the hiatal hernia and then the GI will come, sometimes come in and, and do the TIF procedure. So that works um, really well. As, yep. as well. <laughs> okay. So let's see. Should I be concerned about taking my PPIs during COVID? Okay, so we did kind of talk a little bit about that, but I'll let you go in deeper if you want. Um, yeah, I mean, there is, you know, we don't really know. There was that study that came out recently that showed maybe um, patients that are on PPIs are more susceptible to developing COVID, but um, I think that, you know, the definitive answer is still up in the air at this point, but maybe. <laughs> Go see your doctor, right? Go talk to your doctor about your symptoms. Um, so let's, can we talk a little bit about that? Um, as you know, COVID is, is on the top of mind of, of all patients right now. Um, what are, what are the 
things that you guys are doing at your um, location or at your practice um, to help make patients feel um, comfortable and safe to come into the office to a either have their you know just a re- uh, initial um, consult if it's a good consult or and or do any diagnostic testing or even the TIP procedure at this time with COVID. Right. That's another question that I get asked all the time um, now. You know what? I my practice is as I said about an hour, a little bit less from Manhattan, um, and you know we were hit definitely pretty hard by by COVID. My hospital had over 300 patients admitted um, at a, at its peak. So, you know, during that time, absolutely, we were not doing any elective procedures, and certainly, um, you know, we were not having anyone come to the office or come for diagnostic or to procedures. But, you know, now things have really changed. The The number of COVID patients has gone down dramatically. Um, we, about a month ago, started doing more and more sort of semi-urgent, even progressing towards elective procedures. And for the last couple of weeks, we've really been doing safely and comfortably uh, really elective procedures. And the way that we're, you know, ensuring that we keep everybody safe is that one, everybody who enters our hospital, staff, patients, visitors, anybody gets temperature screened at every entrance um, and is given a mask so that everybody has to walk around at least in a surgical mask and in some areas even uh, stronger and 95 masks. And then all of our patients that come for procedures are getting tested for COVID within 72 hours of the procedure. And uh, and if they're positive and it's elective, we're postponing. And if they're positive and it's urgent, then we use very special precautions where we keep, uh, you know, a lot more PPE and, uh, and isolation techniques to make sure that we keep the whole unit uh, as safe as possible. So, uh, you know, what I'm telling patients is, you know, this is the window. If anything, this is the safe time to come to the hospital. There's uh, everybody is wearing masks. Everybody's being tested. Everybody's being screened. And, you know, the, the number of positive cases in our hospital right now is low. Um, you know, I, maybe and hopefully everybody's, you know, fingers crossed it's going to stay that way and continue to get better. But, you know, there's a lot of concern that the numbers are going to go back up in the in the winter. And so who knows what, you know, if you wait, you know, patients say, well, I'll just wait a little bit longer and maybe it'll get even better. And the concern is that maybe it won't and it will get worse. So I, I think you know, this is the window. If anything, it'll, you know, stay the same or slowly improve, but it could potentially worsen. And so, you know, I've already uh, done a couple tests uh, since we've reopened after, after COVID. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, um, well, maybe you can answer this. Uh, Does stress um, exasperate um, GERD symptoms? Does it? Because what I'm finding is um, we do a lot of advertising and and a lot of communication with um, groups um, on Facebook and social media. And we're we're finding that patients are more and more feeling these um, symptoms more now than than ever. And it could be possibly from from the stress or um, whatnot. So um, so do you think that stress increases the the GERD symptoms or the feelings of the symptoms? Um, yeah. No, I was going to say, I think absolutely, you know, stress is one of those things that can do anything. And I I had a professor once in medical school who put it, you know, the best, I think that, you know, everybody is stressed because you have a test coming up on Friday, you know, 
20% will have diarrhea, 20% will get constipated, 20% will get reflux, you know, everybody manifests stress in different ways. And it's, you know, it's very individual, but absolutely stress, you know, releases a lot of hormones in the body and can certainly exacerbate reflux symptoms. Um, so yeah. that's definitely, yeah. definitely possible. Yeah. Yeah. We hear these patients just suffering, um, and they're like, I don't know what to do. So to your point, you don't have to wait, right? They can come and see you. They can call. There's a lot of physicians doing telemedicine as well, yeah. um, to just kind of do that initial GERD consult and see if, if truly you are suffering from GERD and whether or not you need to come in for, you know, an EGD or any diagnostic testing. And we're, we are getting some more questions, so I'm going to um, try to get here. Okay. So, Dr. Tyberg, I understand the TIF procedure is covered by insurance. Unfortunately, most insurers have not heard of it. Would it be possible to recommend a few health insurers connected to covering this procedure? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, um that's true. There are some insurances that will cover it and some that we have to fight a little bit more for. Um, Medicare and Medicaid do cover it, I think, in almost every state, definitely yep. in New Jersey. Um, and more and more insurances are starting are starting to cover it. Oftentimes, we can, we can fight it, even if it's denied. Uh, there's a lot of uh, literature and data that we can send along, and it, it may not be immediate, but eventually we can get it approved. So, um, you know, I think it's, there's so many insurances out there. It's very uh, hard. To, yeah. Yeah. It's it's different from state to state. Right. Yeah. State to state is very different. I could tell you in New Jersey what's the most difficult and what's the easiest, but I think it's it's very variable. But I will say, you know, most of us that do the TIP procedure have processes in place to appeal um, any denials. And eventually we're almost always able to get it pushed through. Fantastic. Wonderful. Uh, let's see. What do your patients who have had the TIF say that they're most happiest about afterwards? <laughs> yeah, I would say most of my patients, uh, you know, are happy one that they lose weight on the diet. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, uh, no, just kidding. They're, most of them are happy that they're able to come off the medications. You know, I think, uh, you know, and that their symptoms get better because, um, you know, over 90% of my patients come off completely or, um, and a, you know, a small percentage decrease the dose and, or just need it as needed, but they're able to eat things that they weren't able to eat for a long time. And, you know, they're sleeping better, they're feeling better. They're just not suffering the way they were pre-procedure. So I would say at least 50% tell me, oh, I wish I had done this earlier because, uh, you know, I feel so much better. So. Right. Quality of life is totally changed, right? <laughs> yeah. I think that's, you know, probably the biggest thing. Yeah. Um, since you just talked about um, the medications, there's a question uh, we've got. If you take Prilosec uh, how, or Omeprazole, how do I successfully wean off? Uh, I don't want to keep taking this every day for the rest of my life. I've read some awful things about it. I take 20 milligrams once a day. Any advice is appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you're on that kind of medication for a long time, the way to wean off is slowly. So, there's no literature, there's no scientific data to tell us exactly what's the right way to wean it off. But what I generally do is if you're on twice a day to go to once a day for a week, if you're on just once a day, then, you know, maybe go every other day for uh, two weeks and then, and then off. Or if you're on, you know, 40 milligrams, go to 20 for a week and then every other day and then off. So it's, 
it's yeah. just again it's not scientific it's just <laughs> you just don't want to go completely off one day on one day off if you've been on the medication for a long time okay okay fantastic well that's all the questions that we have today um i again i can't thank you enough dr tyberg for for being with us today and sharing all this information is there any um last thoughts about GERD or the TIF procedure that you wanted to, to share with the audience that's still watching? No, I mean, I, I just want to, you know, relay the message again that, you know, it's not, it's not worth suffering with these types of symptoms. You know, if you're not getting the response that you want from the medications, you don't have to undergo a very invasive procedure with a lot of side effects. Like this is a same day outpatient procedure with a relatively quick recovery and uh, almost no side effects. You know, there's no reports of the, you know, the gas bloat or the trouble swallowing that we see with the, with the surgical procedure. And so I think it's a great option and worth at least hearing about and learning about and, you know, thinking about if you're one of those millions of people that fall sort of in that window of not getting relief from your medications, but maybe not you know, wanting to undergo a more invasive procedure. So. Perfect. Couldn't have been said better. Well, thank you again, Dr. Tyber, for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. And thank you to everybody that joined us tonight on Facebook Live. Uh, again, feel free to uh, go on GERDhelp.com uh, if you are looking for more information and or a physician near you. We also have a YouTube channel. Just search for GERD Help, um, and you can find all of these TIFF Talk videos if you miss um, the, this or any other ones that we have. But we have a TIFF Talk every Tuesday, so feel free to tune in every Tuesday, uh, and, and you can learn more about uh, GERD and the TIFF procedure. So. Thank you again for joining us. Everybody stay safe and we'll catch you next time. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERD Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning into another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD Help. Live well, GERD free.